You're listening to Preserves, a Manitoba food history podcast, exploring the rich, flavorful history of Manitoba food and the people who make it, sell it, and eat it. From the packing table to the dinner table, from restaurant specials to grandma's secret recipes, we consider the cultural, social, and commercial aspects of Manitoba food and what it means to us. I'm your host, Kent Davies. As always, I'm joined with my co-host, University of Winnipeg business and food historian, Professor Janice Deason. Hi, Kent. What's in the pantry for us today? On this episode, we'll feature a podcast by Quinn McNeil, a student here at the University of Winnipeg about Canadian Chinese cuisine. On one of our research trips, our Manitoba food history team went to Steinbeck and talked with Low Key Mac. Can you tell us a little about the trip, Janice? And uh, what restaurant was that? It was Lee Village Restaurant. Lee's Village Restaurant has been there for the longest time. I remember going there as a kid. Uh, and we went to Steinbeck in part because I had spent some time there in high school and my undergraduate years. So it seemed like a good place to go. We knew a little background. It was also convenient to Winnipeg for our first time with the truck in case it should run into any trouble. We yeah. could haul it back. So around the same time uh, we were doing this interview, uh, Globe and Mail reporter Anne Huey released her book called Chop Suey Nation, The Legion Cafe and Other Stories from Canada's Chinese Restaurants. It's a wonderful book. You've read it. No. No? No, because you had it the whole time. (laughs) Well, I've read it. It's a wonderful book. And it tells the story of Huey's family um, while telling the story of Chinese restaurants in Canada. And she goes on this road trip across the country in like 18 days and stops even here in Manitoba at a restaurant in Boisevain. I really enjoyed it. And the reason why I bring it up is there is a lot of parallels in the subjects explored in this work and in the interview with Mac highlighted in this podcast. Yes, it's a, it's a book that's been getting a lot of well-deserved attention. I look forward to reading it now that I have my copy back. <laughs> um, and it, it raises a lot of questions that um, some other folks doing writing about food history have been raising, questions about authenticity. Yeah. So, for example, um, there's a book called The Ethnic Restaurateur by... Krishnendure that talks about, uh, you know, what constitutes an ethnic restaurant and what is a non-ethnic restaurant uh, and why do we want to differentiate between them. And then within the so-called ethnic restaurants, uh, what does it even mean to be, you know, a real Chinese restaurant when these are very much historic creations and shaped by time and circumstances? And he raises two, as I'm sure Anhui does as well, the racist aspect of many of the uh, ways that we look at these restaurants in terms of setting aside certain groups of certain cultures and their restaurants as ones that are considered not high-end, not deserving of high pay. You know, we expect tacos to be cheap. We expect Chinese food to be cheap. Yet the, the costs of production, the costs of service, the costs of space rental are the same for them as they are for any other so-called higher-end restaurants. Could the case be made that a lot of Chinese food restaurants were created out of economic discrimination and how it was a way to survive because there was very limited options of what you could do as a laborer after some of these mega projects happen across Canada? Exactly. Uh, When you have restrictions on where you can buy property or if you can buy property, when you have restrictions on what kind of um, businesses you can operate, restrictions on entry into uh, universities to get the kind of education that you need to enter certain professions, uh, the great value of a restaurant is that those are often skills that you have anyway within your own family. You can rely on family labor. 
Uh, and so it makes it something that you can actually do in order to earn a living in a racist environment that is hampering your other opportunities. And we saw this, uh, you know, this this particular episode is about the Chinese Canadian community, but we saw this also with the Greek Canadian episode that we did on uh, chili burgers and Greek burger joints. Yeah, you know they didn't have access to financial capital. Banks weren't giving them loans, and so they ended up uh, looking out for each other in that way in order to establish restaurants and share recipes and and share property too. Yeah, I don't want to give away too much what's going to happen in the podcast, but I I think that's totally reflected in this episode. It's quite a remarkable story. For sure. is one of the biggest things just like my mom like she said like if she don't have rice she can't even sleep she need rice because rice is way more filling and if you ask me rice and potatoes and that <laughs> there's nothing can can overcome rice no and just like people before it's like okay if you if someone give you like a million or how many million dollars just tell you you can't have rice anymore in your life can you do it i said no forget it i don't give me that money <laughs> oh no 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 this is Locke Kimak, the owner and chef at Lee's Village Restaurant in Steinbach, Manitoba. My name is Quinn McNeil, and today we'll explore the role Chinese-Canadian food restaurants have played in Chinese diaspora, where through cuisine, Chinese-Canadians have overcome racism and discrimination. Hi there, for two? Have a seat. Chinese-Canadian food restaurants. From BC to Newfoundland, there's almost one in every town. And that's no coincidence. These restaurants have been standing for decades and are almost so commonplace that we fail to notice them as points of interest or sites of cultural exploration. If McDonald's hasn't managed to squeeze its way into every Canadian corner, but Chinese Canadian restaurants have, there's clearly something going on here. And we're glad Locke was able to share his experience with our interviewer, Sarah Story, to help contextualize some of this in a contemporary light. Grew up in uh, Hong Kong and then uh I have four, like, uh, well, sibling-wise, I have an older brother, an older sister, and a younger brother. While my younger brother also study in, in, in Steinbeck right now. I would say, like, for me, it's the, the lifestyle is totally different from back home and here. And, and the difference is, like, back there is so crowded. All the technology is so advanced and all that. And then uh, I still remember, while my sister study here first, and then also the same school, like Steinbeck, like a uh, uh, Christian high for one year and then uh, my sister is six and a half years six years older than me so so once she's finished her her school and, and university she came, went home and then she asked me like uh, do, am I want to come to Canada to study and then uh, it's kind of scary at the first place but I, 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 I can I, I would say I myself kind of like explore I don't mind to go outside because I know lots of people lot of my friend, they don't have a chance to go out to see the world. But then I was like, okay, this is my chance. For clarification, Locke is participating in what is characterized as Chinese-Canadian cuisine, despite him not being from mainland China. Being just 15 when he arrived in Canada in 2003, he knew he was lucky to have the opportunity to come here to study. But what he didn't know was that this decision would change far more than his English proficiency. The main reason to, to the first thing to come over to Canada is to learn how to speak English and like, okay. you know. But then while well, I, I choose to come over, 
I said, well, I should take this chance. If I don't like it, one year later, I can go back home. No problem, right? But then no, once I arrived here, I saw this. I feel like freedom here. Not just about like family, that I'm away from my family and that. It's just like, you don't have that pressures. The environment didn't give you pressures. The, reason, the thing is like, you look out, you see clear sky. Like this is so wide and open the area, right? But in Hong Kong, right? They are one of those most the, like population density is most like one of the places in the world. It's like lots of people. The thing about it, seven eight million people in just little small places, kind of like a double size of Winnipeg. Then you can tell that's pretty crazy. And then like with all those high rises around you, you feel like you kind of I I like that's something that you can't see, but you can feel the pressures around you because you. You, whenever you see, you can't see a clear sky, open sky, because you feel like you're in a jail kind of feel. So when I came here, I, I, I just like two, three months later, I tell my mom and I told my, and I told my dad like, I think I want to live here. Locke notes the peacefulness of the prairies and the friendliness of those who inhabited it. But as anyone who has been in this situation before knows, the anxieties of being unable to communicate in the language of the people around you knows no end. You never have that relief of being able to fully express yourself and showcase your personality. It can be an isolating period, which is why it's common for newcomers to surround themselves with, if available, members of the community who speak their language. Yeah, my English is very poor back then. In the whole school, 40, 40 kids, like, like with my friend and all that, I, I'm the like, last three. English is like, Bad, <laughs> bad. Yeah. I remember the first year when I'm in grade nine, I only have two friends that are in grade 12. They, I mean, like, like they're from Hong Kong. Although Locke notes that his Cantonese-speaking friends toppled him in age and therefore graduated and left him to battle the obstacles of high school in a language he struggled to participate in, it was almost a blessing in disguise because it forced Locke to use his English, a fact Locke believes to be the main contributor for why he attained a high level of English compared to many of those who have lived in Canada for years longer than him. But at the time, when Locke's English was still, as he put it, bad, he was introduced to the local Chinese food restaurant through his Cantonese-speaking friends. The owner of this restaurant and then across the street, the, the, right now the Fortune Kitchen, but the back then is called Crystal Garden. Yet they also is like, I don't know this owner here first. The previous owner is Tom and Sylvia Sung. And then Sylvia is Lee, right? Like Sylvia is, is the wife, but yeah, usually they keep their last names on. And then, but at first I known them is like in uh, Crystal Garden where we call, one lady is, we call Grandma and then uh, her last name is Chen and then uh, his her son owned it Andy Chen and so that's first I known it because I know my, my friend grade 12 know them and then so be, because of him I also have a chance to met them okay. and then once I met them I've been like friends with them for the rest of the time and then the grandma knows Tom and Sylvie here, and then also that's why I'm, I'm here too. Locke being introduced to the local Chinese-Canadian restaurant follows a pattern in Chinese immigration history. Language and cultural barriers drove newcomers to frequent such establishments because they provided a sense of community, resources, and often jobs as English and French may not have been necessary for employment. Even for Locke, although he developed a handle on English, his goal was to become a Canadian citizen with a stable job, and the fastest way for him to achieve these goals were by completing a college degree in management and taking over the very same restaurant that had welcomed him into the community. But the question remains, why were restaurants such a popular means of employment to new Chinese Canadians? And why are so many of these restaurants in towns that barely warrant, according to fast food conglomerates, a restaurant in the first place? 
Why small towns? What was it that made them seem like such appealing nests to those looking to make one in a new country? Did everyone share Locke's desire for clear skies and vast fields seemingly unpolluted by the bustle of the big city? Some by chance may have, but regardless of how they felt towards small towns, Chinese newcomers were in rural Canada for reasons beyond the sheer desire for some fresh air. In 1885, a Royal Commission's report indicated that among Chinese inhabitants of British Columbia, the top three modes of employment were building the railway, gold mining, and coal mining, all of which were followed closely by additional labourer positions. In her book, Eating Chinese, Culture on the Menu in Small Town Canada, Lily Cho explains that some of the earliest Chinese communities in Canada were those places where a large number of Chinese people worked for settler-owned companies. This predominantly meant those very same industries like rail, coal, sawmills, farms, all of which were rural. This meant that Chinese immigrants were forced into these rural places to make a living, sometimes for labor positions that were only seasonal, leaving them to either move to a bigger city at the end of their work term, if they had the money to support the necessary transportation, since they were usually receiving less than 50% of what Caucasian workers were paid for the same work, or settle where they were. However, this doesn't tell the entire story. Would this not create a sort of Chinatown effect in all the towns with big industries? Not exactly. Those who were finally able to open their own restaurants to avoid competition would often open it in the next town or railway stop over. Even in urban settlements in the early 20th century, agreements were made between Chinese settlers to avoid internal competition. A Chinese-Canadian restaurant that may have been a place for employment and community for newcomers could therefore also serve as a place of opportunity for upward mobility by providing the skill set for others to open up their very own restaurants in places that wouldn't infringe on the clientele of the original a pattern consistent from the days of the railway to Locke's life in the 21st century. It's kind of like a branch going out like this. Andy, that yeah. used to own Crystal Garden, used to work for Tom and Sylvia. And then what happened is when Tom and Sylvia, they run this place, and uh, well, they bought it from the sister, right? And they, I, I don't know how many years they run this, but then there's two person work for them. Work for them. Oh, there's three actually. One is like Andy, one is Chris, and then one is uh, Keith. Keith is like a Tom's brother. So three people, and, and then, so what happened is when they sold, the, like, and once they uh, run this for, I don't know, 10 years, and then because Tom's, the kid is growing up, become teenagers, right? So they want to spend more time with the kid. So they sold this place to Sylvia's cousin, and then uh, his, his name is Tinkwai. After they sold this place to Tinkwai, they, they go across the street, they open Crystal Garden, because Andy want to become an owner too. Yeah, Andy's family have a little money, like have money. So, but then like once he sold it to Tinkwai, right? Of course, he don't have anywhere to go. Tom's and Sylvia across the street opened that. It's called Crystal Garden. And then run the two years, business going great. And then sold it to Andy. So that's one branch just go out. But then in a time pass, Chris opened a brand new Chinese restaurant in Stonewall too. And Keith moved to the old place where Chris used to work. Oh. In Stonewall, so in Stonewall, two so two, in yeah, 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 now. yeah, yeah. So it's oh, kind of branched out. And then what happened? Tinkwai here, that that bought the, bought the the restaurant, right? Sold this back to Tom and Sylvia after he run for like another eight or ten years, because like their kids grow up already, right? So they bought it back, and uh, Tinkwai moved to Silkert and opened and also bought a restaurant there. So see, you oh, see, it's like a thing that boom is going yeah. everywhere. You know? Okay, so that explains the towns, but why the restaurants? 
What led to statistics like those in 1931, where Chinese immigrants made up 1% of the population, yet 20% of all restaurants, cafes, and taverns were run by people of Chinese origin? A brief look at Chinese immigration policy and Canadian attitudes towards Chinese settlers helps explain this phenomenon. Between 1858 and 1884, Chinese immigration was unrestricted in Canada and many workers came to mine gold. But in 1885, Canada implemented the Chinese Immigration Act, which attempted to restrict Chinese immigration by means of a head tax that started at $50 and was later raised to $100, and finally $500 in 1903. For reference, based on the findings of the Royal Commission, the average Chinese laborer earned $300 a year and saved roughly $43 after living expenses. In 1923, the Chinese Immigration Act was replaced with legislation under the same name that virtually barred Chinese entry into Canada, sometimes better known as the Chinese Exclusion Act, which wasn't repealed until 1947, the same year Chinese Canadians gained the right to become citizens. The inability to become citizens closed off professions that required citizenship, such as pharmacy, law, teaching, and politics. With exploitatively low earnings and the inability to participate in positions with higher pay and power, Chinese Canadians were being systematically pushed into poverty. Here's where the Chinese restaurant boom occurred. Business ownership became the most important means of upward mobility for Chinese Canadians. David Lay explains in his book, Chinatowns Towns Within Cities in Canada. Chinese Canadians started to exhibit entrepreneurship, both in how it is generally understood, analogous to business ownership in the context of a market economy, but also in a broader sense, one synonymous to problem solving, more specifically, to get around problems that others find impassable. And that was what they did. They found permittable ways to survive in a social climate that was actively advocating for their disappearance. To get around problems that others find impassable. What better way could be said to describe this time in Chinese Canadian history with policies intentionally made to create additional obstacles? Professional limitations and financial obstacles like the head tax, paired with legalized discrimination in cities like Vancouver and Toronto, where Chinese restaurant owners were subject to police harassment as well as violence and vandalism, set the tone for anti Chinese sentiments across the country. There was even a highly publicized case in 1912 where a white waitress accused a Chinese restaurant owner in Moose Jaw of assault that led to legislation in Saskatchewan, Ontario, and British Columbia prohibiting Chinese business owners from employing white women. The only way this could get any harder is if their primary avenue for upward mobility was in an industry where thousands of years in a pre globalized world would have groomed Chinese and Canadian food preferences to be completely different. Oh, wait, that's exactly what happened. Chinese food that you、um, serve here. It's Canadian it, Chinese. It's Canadian Chinese food, not kind of Chinese. Not the real, real Chinese food. Exactly. I, I, I don't mind. I'll still eat some of those. I, I still eat it. Like, it、yeah. still tastes good and all that. But you know what? You're just, you're just getting sick of it. How is it different? How is the, the Canadian and why is it different, the Canadian Chinese food dishes here? I'll say here the food is mostly about a lot of meat. Okay. A lot of meat. A lot of meat. And the taste, some of the things that we know that Canadian, they won't like it. Just like the shrimp paste, the shrimp. Shrimp paste? Yeah,、okay. very strong yeah. taste. Like, not just taste, the smell too. Yeah. And then, like,、uh, the, the dried salted fish,、yeah. not everyone likes that smell.、Yeah. Some people smell things, it's kind of like a dead, whatever <laughs>、yeah. that is. But、yeah. for us, it's very delicious. The smell it doesn't matter. I, like, if you, it's just like, if you like that thing, you 
doesn't matter that, like that smell you think is always like smells good for me that salty fish and the shrimp paste oh when i smell like oh my goodness <laughs> delicious you can smell you know it yeah. like that's more like the real chinese food oyster we have vegetables we have like uh duck and chicken and then we have this like real pork uh, pork belly Chinese style and some lobster and like but I mean real Chinese food we need to a lot need to spend a lot of time to do it. Locke notes the difference between Chinese Canadian cuisine and real or traditional food eaten in China multiple times and even again when debating what food to make for Sarah. I wonder what I wonder what am I gonna make you? Shanghai noodles. Well, I think Shanghai noodle is good. Uh, Singapore chow mein is pretty good. This is like that's just based on the menus. But I mean, if you want something real, real Chinese, I can make you a very easy one with just egg. That's from back home, and then I think that's very taste. I I love egg myself. Okay. I mean, egg can make many dishes, but I mean, like if you want to make a so real, real egg, like good egg. I mean, you can do it at home too. It's very easy, and I'm sure like. Kid will like it too. Like I, I, I like to mix up with rice. It's always good. But let me, and it's like steam. And and Chinese people they like to do steam dishes all the time because it's more healthy that way. Okay. Yeah. So this is something that you would have eaten in your home. Yeah, in, in my home, yeah, as a kid. So and then. What's the name of it? Oh, just steam egg. We just call steam egg. Yeah. Yeah. Just get the water boiling first, and we just cover it. Turn it on. And I'll get the eggs ready. Let me get this egg. So we don't break the egg right now. This last one, just do the tip. Okay? And try to just make a hole. The reason is because like we need to measure the water. And then we, we keep this. We have good use of it. And then seasoning. And so what do you use for the seasoning? Uh, salt. salt. Yeah, salt. Chicken. Like, uh, like a North yeah, stock. chicken broth. Yeah, chicken mix a little bit. And then I need a drip of vinegar. It won't, you won't taste any vinegar at all, but it's just like uh, the way that I learned it, they just need it. Okay. And then you need the main, very important thing is you need oil. The reason that you need oil is like you need to make it, it will keep it smooth. So what happened is that's what I learned. I learned it from one of those like you know news, okay. like Hong Kong news, and then they have they they also like kind of like you reporter go re like uh, ask different many famous chef, and that's I also I, I we, this is very common like dishes for Chinese. Okay. And I mean Hong Kong. I was in Hong Kong area. I don't yeah. know if all the Chinese like, like used to do it, but then like uh, they shared experience, and then we also know some of my method, right? My yeah. my parents teach us. And then now this is also one way that I learned from them. So one egg, one to half, one and a half water. It's perfect match. Okay. And now usually I'll add water in, but this time I add I add milk. And one egg, one and a half water. Yeah, because if you use egg, you can tell exactly what how many, right? When you steam, that water on top will drip it back on. And then they'll ruin it if you don't put a saran wrap to cover it. Oh, I see. And then also this way you, you, you keep the air going through and then you make the top looks way better. So now it's boiling and like this for five minutes. So we're looking for five minutes and then we'll be checking that again. 
right, let's get a fork for you. Yeah, if you want, help yourself, try it. Oh my goodness. You can have leftover and bring it home. <laughs> Locke is acutely aware that the traditional food of his home country and what his restaurant serves are quite different. But it was never about accurately replicating the cuisine from China. It was about winning over Western palates. Anne Huey explains in her book, Chop Suey Nation, how dishes like ginger beef, chicken balls, and chop suey are what most Canadians have understood as the food that is eaten in China, when in fact this food is not what is or ever was eaten there. Oh, of course. You think about it. Canadian Chinese food, yeah. right? Like, like, just like here, we're not serving real Chinese food, right? So, of course, we need to, like, fit in people's need in here kind of merge it together. People, we found out people here, they like sweet and sour stuff. Yeah, that's like, not mainly, like, for me, it's sweet and sour stuff back home, I, I don't always have it. Only if I go to like, fast food, McDonald's, ketchup. Sweet and sour, yes. That's very high chance, but I mean like, mainly if I go to original Chinese, like traditional Chinese restaurant, no. By appealing to flavors more familiar to the Canadian palate and removing those that were met with distaste, a cuisine that was Chinese without originating in China was born. In a climate where authentic, real, natural foods, medications, and experiences are being increasingly valued, these restaurants are suffering for seemingly not checking the boxes. But this food is how Chinese Canadians gain their Canadian customers and is real through the cross-cultural circumstances that it was invented in. Anne Huey describes Chinese-Canadian cuisine as a food that was created out of discrimination and racism and ingenuity and creativity. It tells such a fascinating part of our history here in Canada. And we're back. Thank you to Loki Mac for sharing his story. It's a fairly unique story, but also fairly similar to many Chinese Canadians. And what I found interesting in Mac's story is how the community involved with this one restaurant in Steinbeck went on to establish restaurants across Manitoba. Very much so. And so you have, a, again, a parallel to the uh, episode that we did on Burgertown. Yeah. In that you have folks from the same community looking out for each other and stepping in to provide the kind of financial capital and business expertise that they didn't have access to otherwise because of, you know, racist policies or practices throughout the province. Yeah. And, that, and I think that plays into another thing about these restaurants has always been a staple within communities and they've built up this kind of nostalgic quality. You have this one Canadian Chinese food restaurant that you frequent with your family for a long period of time. The other thing that I found fascinating just talking about this particular episode and topic, because there's such an abundance of Canadian Chinese food restaurants in communities, I, I've heard that they've used it as a place of gathering for communities where they basically, like, it's it served as a court in smaller communities or as a place for, like, where to hold elections or the receptions for weddings and stuff like that. In very small communities, this is where you go. This was the case with the Hawkins Cheesies factory in Belleville, Ontario. Uh, the owner and manager of that Cheesies factory would go to the same local, the only local Chinese restaurant in Belleville, and they would sit at the same table for lunch every day, and it was a place where they could conduct business. So people knew that if they weren't there at the factory, well, they could find them at the Chinese restaurant. 
And it was just, uh, yeah, these are, are places that become really important to people's work lives. My father, in the early years of his work life in Carmen, Manitoba, was uh, a mechanic and would have breakfast every day at Rick's Cafe, which was the Chinese restaurant in Carmen at the time. And he'd just go there for Pepsi and toast every single day. And so you'd get to know people. Uh, not just the folks who are running the place, but also the regulars who were there on a daily basis, and it just becomes a, a place of community. Do you have a favorite Canadian Chinese food restaurant? Uh, yes, but it keeps changing. So yeah. uh, for the period of time that I lived in Steinbach, I grew up with Lee's Village Restaurant. The oh, one that so is this is a very here. special kind of thing for you. Oh, you bet. Yeah. Loved that restaurant. And then Crystal Garden opened across the street mm-hmm. from it almost, uh, and so we started going there. And then when I moved back into Winnipeg, Sun Fortune is where I've been going lately with uh, my brother and sister and my mother. And just they do a really lovely Peking duck, which I like a lot because I like duck. And then I'm a big fan of their whole fan, their uh, wide flat noodles too. But just around the corner from my house is Hong Hing, which yeah. is just a complete hole in the wall. It's got like maybe four tables. They have not invested in any sort of atmosphere, but the food is great. And they give you a free fried rice if you order more than 20 bucks worth. And it is good stuff. Well, thanks for joining me again, Janice. Thank you. And you out there, thanks for listening. You've been listening to Preserves, a Manitoba food history podcast. Produced by myself, Kent Davies. Hosted by myself, Kent Davies, and Professor Janice Thiessen. This episode was written and narrated by Quinn McNeil. Interview by Sarah Story. Kimberly Moore creates the photos and images that accompany each podcast. Our theme music is by Robert Kenning. Preserves is recorded at the University of Winnipeg Oral History Center. You can check out the OHC and all the work that we do at oralhistorycenter.ca. For more Manitoba Food History Project content, information, and events, go to manitobafoodhistory.ca. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have a Manitoba food story and you want to share it, contact us by clicking on the contact link on the website. Preserves is made possible from a grant from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. Thanks for listening.